Hey, it's Karen Hunter from the Karen Hunter Show on Sirius XM Urban View. Here's a highlight from today's show. We're going to have an interesting conversation because this woman is a novelist. So I got a little confused. I was like, is she coming on to talk about biomedical information? Are we going to do that? No, we're going to talk about Jollof Rice and other revolutions. Yes, this is her new uh, debut uh, book and it is all of the things and it's actually in line with what we've been talking about the last hour let me welcome to the show biomedical informatician professor and author now Omolola Ijeoma Ogunyemi welcome to the Karen Hunter show thank come you on. so much for having me Karen give me credit for the perfection in the pronunciation I mean, I, come on that- that pronunciation was great. Thank you, Smith. I, I was practicing for two seconds here. I did that. I did that. I feel like Yoruba and Igbo is starting to, you know, maybe my peoples are from there. Now, I know mm-hmm. my folk are from the Sierra Leone and from Liberia. But the language, the language is, is getting familiar in my in my uh, psyche. So I appreciate it. Um, you are both Igbo, uh, Igbo and Yoruba. How does that work? Other than- so my my father is Yoruba and my mother is Igbo. <laughs> Now, in on the continent, and before we get into your book, we have such, a, we've been so indoctrinated into the warring tribes and these people and these people. It's like Rwanda. And I'm like, it never made any sense. I'm like, y'all are cousins. What are y'all fighting about exactly? Somebody's taller, somebody's a shade darker or lighter. So that's my enemy. Man, that colonization is so, so, so effective. But it was a way, divide and conquer was the way that colonization worked. So that, that's the only way you could get it to work is to keep people, you know, at each other's throats so they don't see what other people are doing with all the resources and all of that. And by the time you wake up, it's all gone. You have nothing but a few uh, palm nuts. Uh, so let me ask you this. Uh, as somebody, did you grow up on the continent or did you grow up in, a, in America? Yeah, I, so I, I grew up in a city called Ibadan, the second largest city in Nigeria. Um, and I lived there until I was 16 and then moved to the U.S. Okay. You grew up in a Nigeria that had a queen that we just put the rest, mm, right? Yeah. Okay. I'm, I'm saying something. In your household, was there respect for the monarchy or was there like a different um, conversation? There was no respect for the monarchy. In okay. So how do you navigate living in a nation that has God bless the queen British, you're speaking English, right? Mm-hmm. We're both, mm-hmm. we're both, ah, it's in our mouth. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. The, the, the whole education system is rooted in centering this, you know, colonizer. And, and it's, a, it's a struggle. It's something that Nigeria is still grappling with. I remember when I was in boarding school in Nigeria, a boarding school that's pretty much similar to the school described in Jollof Rice and other revolutions, that we would be penalized. We had to pay money if we spoke Yoruba or Igbo or any indigenous language. It was it was like cursing and you had to put money, you were fined if you didn't speak English. And this is long after <laughs> we were supposed, I mean, Nigeria got its independence in 1960 and those practices were still there. So it takes a long time. It really takes a long time to sort of cast off those shackles. And it's, it's sad, but true. So, um... Omalola, when did you get your freedom papers? <laughs> One of the things that was unique about my childhood. So my mother, um, what she's retired now, but she was a literature professor in Nigeria. And what's unique about that is 
she was a professor teaching African and African-American literature in Nigeria. And that wasn't common at all. <laughs> how, well, how does she even uh, land on that? You know, like, because I'm, I feel like a lot of um, Africans don't know or aren't taught what goes on really with African-American culture outside the civil rights movement. So I think that that shot across the globe, right? But a lot of black folk in America don't learn anything about what's right. going on in Africa. As a matter of fact, um, after my anniversary on these airwaves, I'm previewing y'all. I'm going to go around the globe. Like every day you're going to learn something about what's going on on the continent and Brazil and other places where we are in the diaspora <laughs> because hashtag we're the global majority. I'm not just going to spend time here. We got to make and connect the dots. But what what inspired your mother to teach African-American literature? So I think she was always fascinated by that connection. And um, she went to graduate school in New York from okay. um, a teacher's college for, for a bit. And so she decided to write her doctoral thesis on James Baldwin. And so... So in our household, we had all these books. I had my British children's books and I was getting bored of them. And there's all these books by Toni Morrison, you know, Alice Walker. So I started sneaking and reading them. And so even though I didn't really know what everything meant, because you have to be steeped in the culture to understand some of the things that are being said, some of it starts to rub off. You're like, okay, I'm getting a sense of what's going on in this other country that I've never been to. And wow, it, it isn't everything that's being sold to me on some of these, in some of these movies or TV shows. So this is interesting. So that was, it was kind of an eye opener. What was the first thing you learned about black America that shocked you? So I knew about the slave trade. And I knew about, I mean, when we watched Roots, so I grew up on a university campus, so it was sort of an intellectual community. So Roots was a phenomenon on that campus as well. But it was just the sheer, I mean, perseverance, I have to say, because, you know, you look at the history and you're like, wow, like, I, I just couldn't comprehend how people just excelled in spite of that struggle. And, and that's something that I really admire. Hmm. Okay. Um, and one more before I, I get into Jollof Rice and other revolutions, because I, I like to tease my Ghanaian and, and Nigerian ah. uh, brothers, you know, and now Benin and other people are jumping in because everybody's got the best Jollof mm -hmm. Rice. Um, mm -hmm. But I think about my South Carolinian um connection my father's people are from South Carolina which right. we were Africans were brought here to cultivate rice did anybody eating rice thank the Africans so I'm mm -hmm. I'm happy that there's jollof rice wars yeah. everywhere and I've had I've had jollof I've had gala red rice which is to me jollof, same, just another form of jollof <laughs> yes red beans and rice come on through y'all we are we gave y'all rice you're welcome uh so we can fight about it for you um and, and we're talking with Professor uh, Omolola Ijioma uh, Ogunyemi. And her new book is Jollof Rice and Other Revolutions. You know, we were talking before you came about the Woman King and Viola Davis and um, all of the amazing actors who participated in this. I'm going to say groundbreaking because I've never seen a movie. Uh, Viola likens it to Braveheart 
which I would say yes. Yes, it's her brave heart, it's her magnus opus. It's it's that thing. It is that empowering. Did you see it? Have you seen it yet? I haven't seen it yet. I wanted to see it in theaters when when there's a little fewer people because I'll be honest, I'm still a little worried about COVID. All right. So here's my hack. I'm, I'm, I'm gonna give it to, to thin a little bit, but I, I am planning to see it. I want to see it in the theaters. Okay. So, I gave uh, here's the hack that I gave everybody listening uh, on Twitter. Go to a melanemic area. That's white folk. Go to a white folk area. Hit a matinee. Go to a theater that has reserved seating. Mm-hmm. Buy the seats in front of you and the back of you. I didn't have to do this, but I wanted to support. So, but back side to side, you know. Sit on the on that back aisle, not the back back, but the one where you go right. into the handicapped spot, right there, and excuse me, differently able. And um, it, when you go to a matinee in a white area, there's nobody gonna be there. I'm just gonna let you know, <laughs> it's like it's gonna be empty. And then you you, you can even get popcorn because I even oh, had popcorn right. for the first time in two and a half years in a the movie theater. Yeah, right. Nobody was there. I was like, this is heaven. It's beautiful. Um, so there you go. So you can go do that next on Saturday or Sunday. But um, what what inspires you to want to even see this movie? What are you excited about? So, I mean, I, growing up, I, um, I had read about, they were called the Amazons, the Dahomey Amazons. So I'd, I'd read about that, I, them. I'd read about um, King Agaja back in the day and this fighting force of women, and especially women who were considered troublemakers maybe a little problematic <laughs> and so I, once i heard i was like oh i have to see this definitely i want to see this brought to life well you will not be disappointed it brings all of the things um and f- finally 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 biomedical information addition information information i did that right. biomedical informatician I was reading your uh, Twitter timeline and you were talking about the uh, getting your booster because now Pfizer and Moderna have a a upgraded booster that takes into Mm -hmm. account this latest variant of COVID and you're in the medical field. Uh, Talk a little bit about where we are right now for those of us, because I'm still wearing my mask everywhere. I'm the only person wearing my mask out walking. I know. <laughs> in public i'm like oh you're outside i don't trust y'all y'all breathing and running and stuff and so i don't know what kind of spittle coming out i'm dodging i got my mask on though go ahead with that so the way i put it I, you know i know people have pandemic fatigue so they're tired of the virus but the virus is not tired of us it's not tired of us and so we still need to be alert we need to wear our masks we need to get those booster shots and i i i, I liken it to to the flu shot so I always had to get a flu shot. I've worked in, you know, either medical schools or hospitals my entire career. And one of the requirements was to get a flu shot. And I see this in the same light. You know, this is a, was a new virus. It's evolved. We can see it's evolving. And the beauty of what's happened is that, you know, the vaccines came out so quickly. I, I don't think people have taken time to appreciate what an almost miracle it is that we have this these vaccines. But because it's a virus that's evolving, we're going to keep having to get booster shots. And it might, I'm hoping it ends up being an annual shot like the flu shot, but we'll see. But in the meantime, protect yourself because we're seeing all these consequences. People, people talk about, you know, reaction to the shot. They're not talking about long COVID. They're not talking about people who have brain fog like months after. All the consequences, people who suddenly are seeing themselves with like diabetes and, you know, things that they didn't have before and they get COVID and they start seeing all these consequences. 
And that's going to have a lasting impact. So protect yourself, protect your loved ones, get the booster. Let me, I got let me it. I, I, I didn't, I mean, I got it as soon as I could. So there, there are people, um, and, and again, even having this conversation around the woman King, we're fighting through ignorance, right? Oh, mm-hmm. uh, well, if they, how'd they get the, how'd they get the vaccine so quickly? Uh, I don't trust this, you know, government Tuskegee, you know, and all these other things. And it's valid to talk about Tuskegee. It's valid to say, Hey, you know, this happened then. Well, how, how am I sure it's not happening again? One of the things that's happened since then is most universities have an institutional review board. Anybody who's doing any kind of experiment, anybody who's trying to do any medical research has to go before an ethics committee. And those ethics committees also include community members. So people who are lay people who are not scientists who have to say, okay, this makes sense to me. And this is something that I think will benefit people. So things have changed since those days. But I don't blame people for being a little bit skeptical, like, well, if they did that back then. But, you know, it was it was interesting to watch to see Kismeka Corbett, who was very much involved in the research that went into Moderna. And it's like she's got your back. She's not going to do you wrong. You know, I don't think I I think it would have been helpful to have more of the scientists of color front and center so you can see. You know, yeah, hey. Kismekia Corbett should have been there on the stage instead of Deborah Burke <laughs> with her scarves. I, and her... I, I, I agree. Because she would have totally... been like, no, no uh, freaking Clorox. Stop it. She would have. Mm-hmm. I know mm-hmm. the sister would have been up there and been like, no, no to the Clorox. Like that uh, makes no sense. <laughs> none. Uh, let me ask you this, too, uh, as a, as a uh, biomedical informatician. First of all, why did you go into that? Uh, field and what is that field Uh, it feels like journalism rooted in not knowledge of of science science journalism so so biomedical informatics is actually it's computing so i'm a computer scientist by training and i got hooked i I took a programming course in the 11th grade is a language called pascal nobody uses it now but I was like, oh my God, I, I can get the computers to do these things. And it was, I was total nerd, just nerding out, just really enjoying myself. And so I did computer science uh, undergrad, and then I decided I wanted to continue in graduate school. And in graduate school, so I went to the University of Pennsylvania and in the computer science department, they had a radiologist and a trauma surgeon. I'm like, what are they doing in the computer science department? So my curiosity got the better of me and I'm like, what are you all doing over here? (laughs) And they had uh, a research team and they're basically looking at how you could use computing methods to help patients, to help nurses, to help physicians, to make care better. And that's essentially what biomedical informatics is. Taking data from the electronic health record, from medical sources, and using it to diagnose, predict, and help patients. So a lot of the research that I do is around something called machine learning. Machine learning is a a part of artificial intelligence. And the work I do, so the grants that I I most recently had related to diabetic retinopathy. So it's a complication of diabetes. Lots of people have diabetes and they don't understand that you can go blind Mm -hmm. if you don't address it um, in time. And diabetic retinopathy, the, the, the tragedy for a lot of folks is it's completely treatable if you catch it early. So if you have diabetes, you need to see an eye doctor every year. They catch it, they treat, you know, monitor it, they treat it, you're good. Or if you could get your blood sugar down, most doctors don't actually tell people this. 
if you could get your blood sugar down back back to pre-diabetic levels, it will reverse naturally. Come on. But that's Come really on. hard for a lot of people to do. Well, is and it so, though? Or are we just yeah. stubborn? Oh, I don't want to wear a mask. I want to keep <laughs> eating this red velvet cake and all of this sweet right, tea. Right, right. I, I love my Pepsi. I can't give things. I can't give up my yeah. Pepsi, but you'd rather be blind and lose a foot. Okay. Right. Make so it make sense. part of what my research is, is looking at um, patient data. So information about a patient's blood sugar, how long they've had diabetes and using those uh, variables, we can basically say, oh, you probably have diabetic retinopathy and don't know it. You need to go see a doctor right away. So that's the kind of, you know, reaching out and getting people early to prevent you know, the consequences of diabetic retinopathy, which can be blindness. It's a leading cause of blindness in working age adults in the U.S. And many people don't know that. I I appreciate uh, this. Omolola, uh, Omolola Ijeoma Ogunyemi is here. Uh, She's a biomedical informatician. Uh, I also, before I get, I'm going to get into this book, Joloff Rice and Other Revolutions, because I'm I'm reading it and it is amazing. The cover is beautiful. As we are in this pandemic, I'm, I'm just, I just need to know from your standpoint, I never took the flu shot, never had the flu. I'm really big on my immune system being tight and right and drinking my water and not eating sugar, sugary substances and Coca-Cola and all that other Pepsi. Um, no meat, red meat in my diet. Da, 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 da. So I figured out how to not get the flu, but COVID is not the flu. Right. Right. So I'm like, okay, it's airborne. Let me just keep the mask on. If mm-hmm. I got to wear the mask forever, I'm good with that. But do you think there'll be a time when we won't have COVID or did we miss the boat on that by not adhering to science by starving COVID out for the three months that we had an opportunity to starve COVID out? And people I think didn't we, wear really, mask? I missed think we really missed an opportunity, unfortunately. So I think it will be with us for a long time. But what I'm hoping, talking to my medical colleagues, is that it will evolve into a strain that is not as harmful. That's the best we can hope for that you have a COVID that's no worse than the flu, because right now it's much more lethal than the flu. And it just becomes something, okay, you get your COVID shot, like you get your flu shot, but it's not as devastating. And what does the booster do? Cause I'm, I'm, I'm like, okay, one booster, two booster, three booster, four, four booster, five. I'm like, how many boosters? Like <laughs> my body, I got one body. I ain't trying to be boostered up like to the ridiculous. No, 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 but the- So the bivalent booster, so the original uh, vaccine and the boosters were dealing with the original strain of COVID. And as we've seen, it keeps evolving. So what the good thing about the bivalent booster, which is the booster I was talking about that I got, is that it addresses Omicron and the most recent variants. And that's a good thing because (laughs) if you have just the original, you're not protected against those variants. And Part of why we're in this situation is not enough people got their vaccine and not enough people were masking. You know, a lot of people were in denial. And so we have the situation we have, but there's still things we can do. We can get the bivalent booster. We can wear our masks. Okay. Well, I guess I'll get this booster, but that's it. That's it. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) So, um, so how does one, and I know the answer to this because I've said this today. We can do all things. There are no bounds on who we are. There are no bounds on our abilities. We are limitless. So you being steeped as a computer scientist in this biomedical field, 
will sit down and write a, a delicious novel about four <laughs> young people in a boarding school and call it uh, <laughs> and, and and call it Jollof Rice and Other Revolutions. Take, take us through it. Where, where were you when you decided this story needed to be told? So I, I have to, I first have to let your audience know that it took me 15 years to write this book, <laughs> precisely because I have all these other things going on, as you pointed out. So it was, it was a labor of love, but I always kept coming back to it. There were years I didn't touch the manuscript, but I always kept coming back to it because those characters were so uh, dear to me. But um, I basically, so you'll notice that the first story is set in 1897 and moves forward. So I, I I'll, I'll preface the whole thing by saying, you know, when I was growing up in Nigeria, my, my mother mentioned to me once that she had a, 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 an aunt who was married to a woman. And I was like, oh, okay. So it turns out that back in the day, the way that people dealt with infertility in, in that uh, part of Igbo society was, okay, if you were a woman, you couldn't have a kid, you could marry another woman. She would take on a lover. You would have kids, but the kids are yours. They're not his. They don't get his name. They get your name and they carry on your line. And that was society's way of dealing with that situation. Unfortunately, when other people came in, they were like, wait, what's going on here? No, no, you, you got to stop all that. So um, so I, I, I learned about that story and I, it got me thinking, I was like, what would the women, you know, of my grandmother or great grandmother's era, what would they think of my life now? It's so different. You know, we've, we've been colonized. We, we're speaking English. I mean, my grandmother didn't speak a lot of English. So just even communicating with her in the little bit of Igbo that I, I spoke was, 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 a, was a challenge. And so how different our lives are. So it got me thinking about writing from that generation to my generation and then looking into the future, like where are we going? Because um, the last story in the collection, I started writing in 2018 because I'm looking around and I'm like, oh, uh -oh. <laughs> um, after 2016, I was, I was like, okay, it's not, it's not feeling too comfortable here. <laughs> and um, some of that inspired the, the last um, mm. story in the collection. I and haven't gotten to that also, one yet. Okay, so I gotta, okay. I gotta stay. Oh, you, all right, you have to, yeah, you have to stick with it. Okay, all right, because I'm at uh, out of Omar, which even in that, oh, there's, yes, a, yes. there's a spiritual connect um, component, and I keep saying this too. We've missed out on our whole spiritual lives, having people tell us the way we serve God is evil and of the devil right, and all these things, right, and remove right. the very magic that we have access to. Mm -hmm. Um, but the notion that somehow you should l get rid of your child because the, the, the mother, that the child is bad luck, bad luck, know, right. Yeah. That people did stuff like that, right? Yeah. Like yeah. Oh, this child is bad luck because something happened. Um, but he said, no. So thank you mm -hmm. for, for that. <laughs> um, even those stories, where did you, where, where did you have access to, you know, that kind of back, back history? Cause there's some history in here about yeah. how the British come in and sack Benin. I mean, you're, you're giving right. us some history about right. what the British did to this African nation. Thank you. Right. So the kingdom of Benin basically was thriving. You know, when the Portuguese first um, encountered people from that kingdom, they talked about the, you know, the wide streets. They were comparing it favorably with, you know, cities that they knew in Europe because from the 1400s on, the Portuguese traded with uh, the people of uh, Benin. 
but the British sent a punitive expedition in 1897. Um, essentially, there was a British guy who was killed, you know, who, who the Benin, uh, people of Benin felt disrespected them and he was killed. And so they sent a punitive force to avenge him and essentially destroyed everything and seized uh, what are known as the Benin bronzes, which are now in the British Museum um, in the United Kingdom. So, and, and Nigeria has been asking for those bronzes back for eons, but it, it's not looking like that's getting any, we're getting any movement on that. So they basically destroyed this kingdom. And so the, the country of Benin is named after the kingdom of Benin, but the kingdom of Benin was in what is now Nigeria. And so 1897 was a period of a lot of turmoil and the beginning of the realization that for a lot of uh, um, Nigerians uh, that their lives were not gonna be the same anymore, that the colonial period was coming in. There's, you know, we, we have to adapt to these people because they have weaponry that we don't have. They have these guns, they have cannons, they have, we, we can't fight back with the weapons that we have. And so we have to acquiesce. And it's a really sort of tragic uh, period. And I wanted to start there and look at someone who is dealing with that, but trying to live life the way they knew. And then it realized, you know, it's, 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 this is not gonna work. You, you either pick the new or you stay with the old and basically get run over. This is very uh, Woman King-ish, actually. Um, it's kind of that, that battle that was going on in the movie. Where are we now? Juxtaposing it to the book that you've written, this beautiful uh, homage to several periods of history through, through yeah. these human beings that you've uh, breathed life into, and this Jollof Rice and other revolutions. <laughs> where, are we, where are we now? So Nigeria has made a lot of progress and a lot of strides, but we've also taken some steps backward. And unfortunately, it comes down to leadership. And it's the same in many African countries. It comes down to the leadership. And I'm hoping... So things... There are a lot of things that are, have really... I'm grateful for the fact, for example, that when I went to boarding school, the boarding school I described... Um, is similar to the boarding school. The boarding school I describe in the book is similar to the boarding school I went to. But the Nigerian government subsidized my education, right? And I'm grateful for that. That is, people saw the importance of educating girl children. And that's not an insignificant thing. I don't think a country that ignores its women, because a lot of these countries, um, you know, essentially, it's a man's world. But if you ignore your women, if you ignore half of your population, you're setting yourself up for failure down the line. So I'm grateful for that. So in that in that regard, Nigeria, I mean, has done an excellent job. I just wish we had more visionary leadership and I'll, I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> no, that's exactly where it should be. Like that is what leadership is, the ability to mm -hmm. be able to see ahead so that mm -hmm. you can right now plan to get there. Right. <laughs> you right. can't plan to get there if you can't see ahead. What should it look like? 20 years from now, 30 years right. from now, what should people be doing? And then we have to plan right now. Um, that's what leadership is. And if you're not doing that, you're not a leader and you should leave. Mm -hmm. You shouldn't even, you know, you know, all mm -hmm. the power and the money for what? It's individual. Right. None right. of this can we take with us. And you won't even be remembered except as a bad exactly. leader. Exactly. 
Exactly. <laughs> it's like, you know, if Trump had never run for president, he would have gone down and been immortalizing rap songs forever as the pinnacle of lifestyle of the rich and famous. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And now he'll be known as a dumpster fire clown forever. But he wanted to be president or maybe not. So uh, for the folk out there who are looking for, because I, I love novels from people who are smart. <laughs> I say, I'm, I'm going to say that, right? Because, you know, when, when you have like um, lawyers who write books or doctors who write books, like Dr. Ian writes a lot of novels as well, Dr. Ian K. Smith. I love, re- because there, there's different things at play that you bring in and, and it, it makes it such more of a rich experience for somebody like me who loves to read. Um, what do you hope people get from Jalof Rice and other revolutions? Okay, so it follows uh, four young women where they meet in boarding school up until their 70s. So it starts, there's the backstory of one of their grandmothers, which is the story that you're reading right now set in 1897. And then the rest sort of moves forward from the 80s through um, 2050. So there's a little speculative element looking into the future there. And it's basically about friendship at, 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 at the core of it it's about friendship and some of the kinds of friendships that you can have that are like family you know you have friends who have your back even even more than your sister does sometimes so so it's about really strong friendships that last a lifetime and then um the girls start out in nigeria but they come to the u.s and then some of them go back and they come back you know so there's that immigrant experience as well of, um, you know, trying for a better life, getting, coming face to face with the racism in the U.S., which many people are not expecting because, you know, they see the movies and everything and they're like, oh, it's just going to be great. And then the first time they get that experience, they're like, well, what am I doing here? Okay. Um, so it's grappling with that and triumphing in spite of it all. And so um, there's a lot of going back and forth between Nigeria and the U.S. There's trips to other countries within Africa and uh, in Europe. And it's, it's basically a testament to their, their friendship, but it, it, it involves other characters who give you their opinion of the four main people as well. You coming to America really, um, you, you talked about 2016. Did you think about moving permanently back to Nigeria? Um, yeah. Okay. And you have a place to go. Like, I don't have a place to go. <laughs> See what I'm saying? That's why I'm still here. First of all, my, my husband is not Nigerian, so <laughs> it would be a lot of convincing. And that's one of the things, though, is, you know, part of being strong or helping a multiracial democracy to survive is to not cut and run when there's problems, right? So to try to do your own bit to make things better. And at that point, writing <laughs> writing that story was one of the things that I could do. Writing that last story was one of the things I felt I could do. Because no, everybody can't pick up and leave. And so you. we all got to do our bit to to make things better. The US is unique in having a multiracial democracy, unique in the world. And there's people who don't like that. No, no, no. There's people who don't like that because true equality is not something that they're ready for, but we could get there. 
we could get there. We're not there yet. We could get there. But it requires that, something that is a challenge us. for some people. Yes. And and if we all stepped into that, because half of us don't even vote. If all the, right. the people and that's, could vote, that's, voted, yeah. it could happen tomorrow, exactly. actually in November. Exactly. And then in exactly. the next two years. And then, then we'd have what we want and then we'd com- complain about something else. But in the meantime, <laughs> I, I think we can get there too. And I thank you for your service uh, in all of the field and then immortalizing these characters in Jell-Off Rice and other revolutions. Thanks for joining us. I want you to come back on a Tech Tuesday and a Wellness Wednesday. Uh, <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. pleasure. Omalola Ijeoma Ogunyemi, the book, of course, Jell-Off Rice and other revolutions. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, this is Karen Hunter. You can listen to The Karen Hunter Show live every Monday through Friday at 3 p.m. East on Sirius XM Urban View Channel 126 or anytime on the Sirius XM app.